welcome to episode 10 of the Baseload Podcast, the last for 2022. Thanks for listening this far. I'm looking forward to 2023. Now, I'm just an engineer, I don't know everything, and I'm certainly not immune to making mistakes. But with a few insights from my training and experience in the power and gas sector, I do have grave concerns for the future, mostly around future opportunities, debt, and the overreach of bureaucrats and governments, state and commonwealth. Also, the willing participation of big corporations, which I think most will agree is part of the wider problems facing the freedoms and cost of living for those of us lucky enough to live amongst the relative comfort of Western civilization. Australia's decline has been slow, but is accelerating, and the last few weeks of 2022 have seen a seismic shift in the way the world understands Australian politics. Episode 10, let's go. This is Australian gas under Australian soil, and Australians should pay a fair price for that, but they shouldn't be uh, paying a wartime price, a wartime price leading to very high profits for a few companies, and endangering industries right around the country. In isolation, I have some empathy for Chris Bowen's statements. Yes, it is a tough situation for Australian consumers to see high gas prices because we are linked to global markets. Due to governments boycotting Russian oil, gas and coal, the global markets are tight. This means competition for resources pushes up the price. For those looking at Australia's endowment of all the resources in demand around the world, it is reasonable to criticise the policies that got us here. That very much includes the LNP as well as Labor and Greens, and there is absolutely no argument from me that Australian politics of all flavours has got us to this point. And by that I mean stalling gas and coal developments, capitulating to net zero demands, refusing to extricate Australia from useless global agreements like Paris that serve merely to undermine our natural advantages. We are often labelled an energy superpower, but I'll suggest this only applies so long as the coal and gas contracts last. After that, we are toast. The supremacy of the RE lobby and its sycophants, and by that I mean media, academia, the scientific community, big corporations and the immense bureaucracy, has seen the erosion of confidence in our supposedly stable government. This is good news for the rabid green left-wing renewables lobby because it pressures the policymakers into even more bad decisions. I don't mean bad for them personally, but for the country. If the big resource companies pull out of Australia over the next decade or so, they will do so not to end their business and close up shop, but to relocate to Indonesia, India, Africa, places where they can operate with far less oversight and far more freedom. They will survive, but our local industries won't. Federal and state budgets are bloated with debt and the spending just keeps going up. Without the big dollar inputs from resource taxes and royalties, without the high-paying jobs that return massive taxes to the governments, what is left? A country that relies on other countries for its energy, food, steel, labour and a myriad of other products, and unable to pay its increasing debt. Governments have traditionally sold off assets to pay down debt, but what will we have to offer? A few loss-making power stations that depend on subsidies and targets to exist? Carbon pricing by stealth, this is the safeguard mechanism that adds needless cost to make industries uncompetitive? We'll end up a country with a huge public service and a few banks. Because the government's only way to hide these climate costs is to nationalise industries. The power sector is first, but what's next? Agriculture? Telecommunications? Aviation? The number one issue here is protecting consumers from electricity bill increases, protecting business from electricity bill increases. That's what I want to see, and that's what we're asking the Commonwealth to do. New South Wales Treasurer and Energy Minister Matt Keane interviewed on the ABC radio this week about the federal government's proposed price caps on coal and gas as a mechanism to make electricity prices lower. Minister Keane wants more control over the market and supports greater market intervention in the form of handouts, regulation and price caps. Listeners may recall he was granted a 30-day period of godlike power over New South Wales coal during the energy crisis in June this year. 
New South Wales taxpayers are already subsidising people to the tune of $330 million per year. To be honest, taxpayers getting some of their own money back is a good result, but does the end justify the means? I don't think so. If Matt Keane's number one priority was lower prices for consumers, why would he be implementing a floor price for new renewable projects? This is his long-term energy services agreement. Can Minister Keane explain why renewables will lower prices? They haven't yet. If he really wanted lower prices, he'd be encouraging development of energy projects like gas and coal. Extra supply will bring down prices. Minister Bowen has finally been asked which coal-fired power stations are using high-priced coal. What percentage of coal used in our power stations is under long-term contracts and therefore not affected by spot mm. prices since the war? Peter Stefanovic almost got this question right. A slightly better question would have been, which coal-fired power station is affected by Newcastle Port coal price? Because the Newcastle Port coal price is the one that's hitting $400 a tonne for thermal coal. And the war he mentioned is obviously the Ukraine war. So which power stations are buying coal at export prices? I'm pretty sure there is none. Can the Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen shed some light on this question? It varies from state to state and power station to power station, Pete. Um, some have long-term contracts locked in, some of the power stations. Others are working more on the spot market. It just really depends on which market, which power station. Uh, right. That's one of the issues that we've been looking at. But uh, would it be know, a high percentage across the board? So let's break this down a little bit further. Does the Newcastle port sell coal to Victorian power stations? Well, no, because Victorian power stations, which are Loyang A, Loyang B and Yalorn, all have their own mines, which mine brown coal, which is a younger coal, which is closer to dirt, to be honest, than, than the good black coal out of New South Wales. But no. Victoria is not affected by this problem. Is Queensland affected by Newcastle port coals or even um, Abbott Point coal prices? No, because the coal power stations operating in Queensland have their own mines. Are any of the New South Wales coal-fired power stations affected by the Newcastle port price? Well, if you read Origin's uh, annual report, which talks about Araring, then no. If you read AGL's annual report, which talks about Liddell and Bayswater, then no. Uh, they all have long-term contracts, although I suspect that Araring being shut down is more to do with its long-term contracts coming to an end than the price of today's coal. Uh, that leaves Vales Point and Mount Piper. Now, they may be exposed to the coal, but how much effect are they having on electricity prices? Can Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen shed some light on those questions? Uh, well, look, again, it really does vary. You've got some power stations which have had contracts in place for a while. You've got others that have got contracts coming up for renewal. You've got others that are uh, looking you know, into the more medium future. Everybody's different. Uh, and hence, you've got to have a response. Your, your question is fair enough, but you've got to have a response to deal with all the possible scenarios. The Albanese government is acting domestically, implementing the policies we took to the election, implementing rewiring the nation to bring on new transmission, Mr Speaker, implementing reforms to drive down emissions, because we know on this side of the House that renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy, and we know that renewable energy is key to driving down our emissions. Yes, it will be a long show with lots and lots of Chris Bowen clips. He has been everywhere, uh, spruiking his plans. Now, you have it there on good authority from Mr. Bowen himself that the priority here is emissions reduction, not cost. Now, he does continuously say that renewables are the cheapest form of energy. Now, 
therefore, why do they need a price cap on everything else? If renewables are cheapest, people would be flocking to it, surely, to, to build it. Private investors, not even the government required. But anyway, that's beside the point. What does Mr. Bowen expect to happen after his price cap on coal goes live? Clearly, any coal-fired power stations with a contract that's already below the price cap will not be affected at all. I expect any coal supplier who gets their revenue cut by the price cap will be compensated by the government or cancel their contract, claiming force majeure. Let's consider the post-Liddell scenario in New South Wales. Liddell consistently generates around 1,000 megawatts, increasing to 1,300 megawatts during peaks. The station was derated a couple of years ago to keep it running with less maintenance as it gets closer to closing down permanently. Once that happens in April 2023, which is less than six months away, that output must be obtained from other generators, most likely the remaining coal-fired generators in New South Wales. And that makes things interesting, because these remaining coal-fired generators must then burn more fuel, and therefore must increase their fuel contracts accordingly. With the price cap on domestic coal, how will they do this, if they haven't already? And if the grid needs the coal power, and the coal power can't come because of not enough fuel, or the finite rail capacity that limits fuel delivery, or the weather floods a couple of mines, the end result is something else will have to provide the electricity, and that something else is gas. The purpose of a market is the price signal. In a well-functioning market, high prices solve high prices. Actually, the flip side also holds. Low prices solve low prices. So you'd expect that high demand for gas would push gas prices up, and as a result, there'd be an investment in gas development, which would eventually lower the prices. In some cases, people study the market forces and gamble, investing before the high prices hit and are therefore able to take advantage of the high demand. We see the effects of oversupply every day in the wholesale electricity market when there is so much capacity due to rooftop PV that spot prices collapse and go negative. The electricity has to be given away. Well, nobody tell the RE lobby that more supply lowers prices, but, but that's what they keep saying with wind and solar. More of it will lower, electri lower electricity costs. The problem is they are only correct when it's windy and sunny and only up until the existing infrastructure can absorb the intermittent asynchronous generation from inverters. We've seen the economic limit of renewable energy breached. That's the negative daytime prices and the lack of investment. Now we are approaching the physical limit, which is why the government has to force build thousands of kilometres of transmission lines. The government's rewiring the nation plan states that they will spend $20 billion of public money in an attempt to attract a further $58 billion in other investment to build over 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines, bringing some of the AEMO-listed projects forwards by up to two decades. So how are we going so far? Well, Marinus Link, which links uh, Victoria to Tasmania again, is $3.8 current costs for 255 kilometres. That's $15 million a kilometre. Energy Connect, which links South Australia to New South Wales is $2.3 for 900 kilometres, relatively cheap at $2.5 million per kilometre. Humelink, which is supposed to link the new Snowy 2 project to Victoria, $3.3 billion for 360 kilometres, that's $9 million per kilometre. Only 8,485 kilometres to go. Now, that's a lot of numbers. Let's do a few more. If we take the average of the two above-ground lines, we get a cost of over $5 million per kilometre. That's a mere $50 billion for the proposed 10,000 kilometres. So the $78 billion, $20 billion plus $58 billion, is not that far-fetched. 
Now consider this, the existing transmission network is valued at around 20 billion and contributes 10% to the average electricity bill. This is numbers from the Australian Energy Regulator's State of the Energy Market Report. Because the network price recovery is regulated, guaranteed profits around 8% or so, the cost of new transmission plus profits goes straight onto our bills. If the value of the transmission system increases fivefold, the electricity bill component via the cost recovery plus profits must go up fivefold. So if the 10% transmission component is $200 per year now, by 2030, that same component of the bill might be $1,000. And even if everything else in the bill stays the same, your bill has gone up by 40%. We will continue to implement the policies we took to the election, which are all about getting more renewables into the system because they reduce emissions, yes, but also, Sarah, because they are the cheapest form of energy, as our market operator says, by a country mile, mm. and more renewable energy means uh, that, lo pet uh, that uh, energy prices are lower than they otherwise would be. So that means building the transmission to yep. get the renewable energy on, it means building the storage, all the things we went to the election, which we've made good progress on, and I'm pleased with that progress, but I'm not satisfied because we have an enormous amount left to do. This week I played around with a couple of spreadsheets and had a look at some numbers on the system. And what I did was I looked at the, the maximum megawatt output and the minimum megawatt output for the last week and divided those numbers by the total generation capacity, uh, not including rooftop PV. And that represents a sort of system capacity factor. And I did, and I did that for each region. So looking at South Australia, uh, which had quite a high uh, contribution of wind and solar this week, which meant all the rest of their generation was idle, the maximum system capacity factor for generation was about 38%. Now, the minimum was about 17%. So the flip side of that used generation is unused generation. So this is equipment that's being paid for continuously, but is sitting idle. That includes um, gas, it includes wind, solar, uh, diesel and whatever else is around in South Australia. So you can see that. Now, when you look at the average electricity retail prices in South Australia, uh, you can, when you, and there's a couple of websites that do this. Canstar Blue is one of them. Uh, 36 cents a kilowatt hour is the number for South Australia, whereas Queensland is 21 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, Queensland's uh, system capacity factors are the highest. The maximum is close to 70%. And the minimum is closer to 40%. And they are, they are higher than all the other states. And as a result, Queensland has the lowest overall retail rate. So that's a, for me, that's a fairly telling. It's a simplified analysis, but it's, you know, it doesn't say the opposite, does it? Bruce Robertson is an expert with the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. And he's on the line with us this morning. Bruce Robertson, good morning to you. Good morning. Let me go to the very simple question first of all. Is this going to bring down power prices? Well, look, it will bring them down a little bit, but nowhere near enough. The, the trouble is, Ben, if we go back, you know, I've been on your show a number of times, and before that I was on with Alan Jones talking about domestic gas prices and how they were far too high. Bruce Robertson is a long-term anti-fossil fuels activist. Here he is on Ben Fordham's 2GB radio show talking about Chris Bowen's $12 a, a gigajoule cap on domestic gas prices, as well as uh, making some pretty wild claims about 
what consumers are being offered in terms of gas prices locally. Australian consumers have not only paid international prices, they've paid above international prices for gas that's produced here. So in my opinion, Robertson is being deliberately misleading here. The ACCC does a gas inquiry report every six months, the latest one coming out in July 2022. Uh, And they do say that they have a concern about one LNG exporter offering gas to the domestic market at prices it cannot reasonably expect to receive when selling uncontracted gas to the international market. Robertson continues to talk about his proposed fair and equitable figure that he's just plucked from somewhere. And this figure of $12 a gigajoule, there's absolutely no economics, no economics or financial analysis behind it. If you ask Chris Bowen why 12 or 13 or whatever number they come up with, they won't be able to give you a reasonable answer. But I have. And I've, I've written a paper that basically shows that, like WA, we should be paying less than $7 a gigajoule. So $7 a gigajoule. Let's, let's break that down. He calls that a return. So he, in his report, which is available on the internet, he quotes average production costs of $5.50 a gigajoule, which he's pulled from an AEMO report. So that'll be close enough. That leaves $1.50 a gigajoule as the return or to make up the $7. But the problem with that is all those figures leave out the transport costs, which is the pipeline costs. And now the transport costs vary from $1 to $3 a gigajoule, making the actual cost of gas, you know, from five fifty up to maybe $8 a gigajoule. So what he's expecting is, is the transport for free? Does APA not get paid their fee? Do the producers pay the transport fee and not the consumers? So this is propaganda, not analysis. I should let people know that Bruce Robertson's report is up on 2GB.com. It's called What is a Fair Price for Domestic Gas? We have various different powers. You know, the Commonwealth's got some good, good powers. The states have some good powers. What we've done is looked at all the powers we have under our respective constitutions yep. and thought, well, what's the most effective way here? We've got some powers. We should use those. Okay. The states have got some powers. We can talk to them about using those. And that's what's happening. Chris Bowen again, uh, talking about the subsidy for renewables to end all subsidies. Uh, this deal will see wind and solar provided a guaranteed floor price, further insulating these projects from reality. Does anyone think the existing wind and solar projects will be offered a lifeline too? Or will the new projects just eat the lunch of the existing projects? Capacity mechanism, which we will implement in partnership with the states and territories, will see the Commonwealth call auctions uh, for bids for dispatchable renewable energy, which the Commonwealth will underwrite going forward. How good is it? And what can go wrong? This is a sensible, carefully designed mechanism which will unleash investment in clean, dispatchable energy right across Australia. Stability, certainty, unleash, the cheapest, firming, cheapest energy, renewables, all over the country, unleash. Renewables is the cheapest form of energy. It needs to be firmed with storage so that it's dispatchable and reliable. That's what this mechanism will unleash, not just support, will unleash across our country with the stability and certainty that the mechanism will provide. Uh, What sort of electricity was that, Mr Bowen? 
Yeah, and, and you're asking, is there enough baseline power now? I'm saying we need more of it. We need more dispatchable, renewable energy. Any other questions? Uh, yeah, I have a question. What is dispatchable, renewable energy? So, we, so therefore we need more power generation. Abs, we, need to, we need to generate more power generation urgently. And that's renewable. And it's got, it's got to be, it's got to, that's why one of our requirements in the auctions will be there's got to be firmed with storage so it's dispatchable. But don't we have enough dispatchable electricity now? Isn't that what we call baseload? Well, I don't understand what you mean by we have the baseload right now. We, we, of course we have the baseload that we have now. We need more baseload power. So we're running out of baseload power. We need to build more dispatchable power. And this is going to lower prices? That's right. The government promised lower prices leading up to the election. As you know, in the budget, we were upfront with Australians about what pressures were coming uh, next year. Uh, we have um, processes where increases get announced as a draft in February and then a final in May of the sort yeah. of draft default offers that come out. We're working hard to make sure that they are, those, those are as low as possible. Obviously, um, you know, we are dealing with a very difficult situation where coal and gas are way more expensive than yeah. they were in December. Right. That's happening around the world. That's happening around the world. All governments are acting and responding. We're yeah. no different. Uh, and in Australia's case, of course, we're a federation with different powers. Yeah. We've, uh, we're talking to our friends in the state government. Sure. I've got an energy minister's meeting today, which is important, but we'll be, we'll be talking about how we get more renewable energy so, on faster in a more dispatchable of... way, and we'll, be help, and we'll be helping our prime yeah. minister and premiers as well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.